Let's pray again. Father, we sing that and are sincere, yet at the same time, if we're honest, there are many things that are difficult for us to turn loose of. And some of us, even at this moment, are learning to release our grip on relationships or possessions or positions that have become so much a part of us that it's painful. And we desire to sing and pray and, and testify sincerely, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus, but many of us are not quite there yet. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you that you continue to grow us and change us, that you are rooting out of us those unholy affections and even those things that divide our attention and love for you. That's such a kindness of you. And we ask that today as we open your word and look into this truth, this God-given divine truth, that we would see ourselves as we are and recognize that your call upon our lives is to come to you as we are, to follow you as you order our steps and to be changed by your work in our hearts until we are finally what you desire us to be. Give us faith to believe that this is where the highest good could be found. Protect us from the deceit of the evil one who questions your word and questions your goodness, who offers alternatives to us that seem pleasing, that seem beneficial, but in the end are death and destruction. Oh God, how we ask that you would give to us faith to believe your word and desire and even uh, the commitment to act upon it. So meet us where we are today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Mark 12 and find verse 12. That's where we'll pick up the gospel story in just a moment. You know, there are masks of all kinds, aren't there? There are some masks that are designed to protect us from inhaling harmful things. And if any of you are woodworkers or painters or, you know, construction types, you would appreciate uh, this kind of mask. might be a little more colorful than what you, you wear, but you don't want to inhale things into your lungs that would, that would cause damage. Then there are masks that are designed to protect you from the cold. You see that? That's actually what skiers and snowboarders can be found wearing. I'm, I'm kind of partial to that because I've never been able to grow a, a really thick, full beard, and so I would have to purchase something like that. I also like the fact that that's a little bit intimidating, as if my poor skiing isn't intimidating enough to people who are on the slopes. But, you know, you would look like uh, a real character with that kind of mask on. Then there are masks that create an alter ego or a separate identity, right? And when it's little kids who do this kind of thing, we all laugh and say, that's cute. If adults walked in today wearing things like this, that would be alarming to us. We'd wonder what's really going on there and, 
And are you under some kind of delusion that you are a superhero? Sometimes we alter our identity. And then sometimes we wear masks that actually conceal our identity. We don't want people to know who we really are. And it might be in the context of a costume party. Some of you have been to those before. And maybe there's a big reveal at a certain point, And the person who uh, used a mask or even attire that most obscured and made it most difficult to, to realize who it is, they win some kind of award. But there are all kinds of masks in life. Did you know that the part, that part of the good news of Jesus Christ, though, is that this last kind of mask that would actually conceal a person's identity, and it's sometimes actually called hypocrisy, is no longer necessary. Jesus invites us to come to him first, just as we are. He doesn't ask you to clean up yourself, to make yourself more impressive, to put together some kind of spiritual resume that would, that would get you access into his presence. His first invitation is for you to come as you are. Now, in coming as you are, you've got to acknowledge that you're really as bad and broken as you are. But he already sees it. He's not threatened by it. And, and in coming to him, that's, that's what he wants to remedy. But then he doesn't leave you as you are. And that's the second half of the good news, is that he begins to work this powerful transformation and not force you into some artificial mold of spirituality that you would never be comfortable in, but, but actually to restore you to his created purpose for you. The only way to become the real you is through Jesus Christ. We're going to explore a little bit of that today as Jesus encounters three different groups of people in this next portion of Scripture, two of which are identified as hypocrites, as mask-wearing people. The third group, though he, he doesn't describe them as hypocrites, neither Jesus nor Mark in his gospel, but, but they're parallel to the first two in the sense that they're walking a similar path. And so today we want to look at how Jesus unmasks our hypocrisy, how he addresses our wrong thinking that ultimately is destructive to us personally, and, and he just spreads his arms and heart wide again in great love and is compelling all of us to come to him. Now let's begin reading in Mark 12, uh, verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him. Who's the they? Well, as our study has been guiding us. That's the religious leaders in Jerusalem. But feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Now verse 13, and they, so the same group, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now skip down to verse 18, because we just identified two groups, but there's a third here that I want you to see. And Sadducees came to him. So we just had Pharisees, Herodians, and Sadducees named. Now let's talk about the three groups for just a moment. We've encountered them before in the Gospel of Mark, but I just want to make sure we're, we're thinking in some categories because I actually think that the same categories of, of people exist today. They might be described by a little different terminology, uh, but just see if you can't think of examples of this right out of present-day culture. So the Pharisees who were the religious separatists of their day, 
were the, the principal religious sect among Jews. Uh, they prided themselves on their knowledge of God's word and their holy lifestyle. They were very serious about keeping God's law. The problem is that they didn't stop there. They went beyond God's law. They added man's traditions, and so it became very confusing as to what was the authoritative word of God that should be lived out and what was just tradition. And there's a lot more that could be said there. So they were, they were a group that was committed to the written law of God, but also to the oral law or the traditions. Then you have the Herodians. They're the political followers and adherents to Herod the Great and his family. And they were in theological agreement with the Sadducees that we'll get to in just a moment. But politically, they were more pro-Herodian than the Sadducees. So to distinguish them from the Pharisees, and this is what makes for such a, a fascinating and odd alliance that Pharisees and Herodians would come together. While the Pharisees looked for a cataclysmic messianic kingdom... Uh, to present itself and remove the Herodian rule, the Herodians were actually working to keep Herod's dynasty in power. Both are interested, though, in snaring Jesus in his own words, as we'll see in just a moment. And so it's that old, that old adage comes to mind, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I mean, you would never find Pharisees and Herodians sitting down for, you know, just a, a great time together of fellowship and interaction. I mean, they had such, uh, such opposing ideas ideologically in many ways that you would never expect them to come together, but they both despise the life and ministry and authority of Jesus Christ. Now, the Sadducees are what we might call the religious elites. Several things about them. They actually affirmed the first five books of the Bible, but that was it. Anything beyond Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they disregarded. They did not believe it to be the true word of God. They did not believe it to be authoritative in their lives, so they subscribed only to the first five books of the Bible. Two other characteristics of them that are important to know in light of the conversation that's about to unfold between the Sadducees and Jesus is that they actually denied mankind's future resurrection. They thought this life was all there was. You live, you die, you return to the dust. That's it. The second thing is that they actually believed the individual, mankind as a race, has absolute freedom. So any talk of a sovereign God, a divinity that had some kind of, of control over their lives, they would reject that. And so you can see that would lead to a wrong conclusion that they individually were their ultimate own authority. Now, it's important to just know those few things about these three particular groups because now as we go back to verse 13 and we begin to see what is happening here, one of the first things that Jesus begins to do is to unmask the hypocrisy of these first two groups. Verse 14 says, They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Seems like a pretty straightforward question in many ways, doesn't it? But as we continue reading, verse 15 uh, reveals something significant that is in their hearts. But knowing their hypocrisy, he, that is Jesus, said to them, why put me to the test? And so first of all, he's unmasking the, the hypocrisy of ulterior motives. They're trying to trap him. 
That is, they, they are seeking to ensnare him. It's a term that's often used with reference to fishing or hunting. And in this context, these men are sneaking to snare Jesus like their prey. There's a second expression of hypocrisy, and that is the hypocrisy of flattery. Did you catch this? You are true and do not care about anyone's opinions. Well, what they say is accurate. But the same truth and reality has never touched their hearts to, to bring them to a point of submission and worship. They flatter Jesus simply to gain an advantage over him. And they're about to set him up, and that brings us to the third part of this hypocrisy that they are putting on full display. It comes in the form of this question, and I would say it's a, it's a feigned dilemma. Should we pay them or should we not? Now, Let's dig in a little deeper here, because what they were actually uh, putting forward uh, and what Jesus will do in just a moment is say, give me a coin. And there's a little bit of context here that is really helpful. The denarius, the common coin that Jesus will refer to in just a moment and that many of them would have been hung up on, was, was a coin that portrayed... Uh, Tiberius, the emperor, and it did so as if he were the semi-divine son of God, a small g, uh, because Augustus uh, was considered to be a god. That, that's part of the whole Roman culture. And on the coin, it was commonly inscribed Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, and on the uh, on the other side. Pontifex Maximus, uh, and th this terminology was representing him really as a divine being. Now, you can understand why Pharisees would be a, a little concerned about even transacting with this kind of currency. And you can also understand, knowing a little bit about the, the religious political ambitions that the Herodians had, that they would have a different perspective on this. Historians tell us that the Pharisees resented a kind of humiliation that they had to undergo in paying that tax. It also created a bit of a conflict for many of them because their consciences were so tight on, on honoring God's word as they understood it. And so from their perspective, paying that tax could be described in some ways as a form of idolatry. Because if you're transacting with currency that has printed on it, not like American currency, in God we trust, but that basically says Augustus is God. Tiberius is a son of God. Well, I'm a little sympathetic with that. That would bug me. But they're not actually there to say, Jesus, help us work through this matter from uh, conscience, for conscience sake. They're there to trap him. Herodians would have had a little different perspective. Their concern would be, as is recorded in history, that if, if we dishonor Herod and the Romans, there will be political consequences that will certainly harm our country and people. It is to our advantage that we cooperate with this Roman leader. And the Herodians would have pressed this from the side of political concerns, while the Pharisees would have pressed this from the side of religious concerns. I said, does that sound vaguely familiar to our political context? 
You've got several different religious groups who would say, man, if you sell your soul to this present administration, you may not even be a follower of Jesus. And you've got others who say, he's the leader that God has raised up. And if we don't work with him, we will suffer even greater harm. But you know, may I say that the, the point in Mark's gospel is not to draw to the surface differences of political opinion or perspective, but actually what Jesus is doing is, re- is revealing a deeper problem in all of our hearts, and that is hypocrisy. He's revealing the human tendency to wear a mask, but knowing their hypocrisy. He's fully aware of what motivates them and moves them to say what they are saying and even to pose the question that they have put in front of him. Now, a hypocrite, by definition, is a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion. It's a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. And what Jesus is exposing here in both of these groups is that under the guise of religious concern, one out of of concern to separate from all unholiness, and the other out of concern, you know, under the guise of religious concern for the nation, that they would come together to pose this question to Jesus. But the reality is neither group is submitted to the real king who is present in front of them. The divine authority of Jesus Christ is the greatest threat to both of these groups. That's why they're willing to be allies at this moment. This is not a problem exclusive to Pharisees and Herodians or even to the religious politicos of our day. This is a human problem. It's human nature to play a part. To assume some kind of guise that would mask what we really are or what we really think. And may I say, it's not hypocrisy to be flawed, imperfect, to struggle, to have doubts or fears. It's hypocrisy to act like you've got it all together, that you know all the answers and you're living perfectly. That's hypocrisy. And I want you to see Jesus' marvelous wisdom Look, look at the text again. I, did, I should have put this on the screen on a slide, but I didn't. Go back to Mark 12 and look at Jesus' next words. Verse 15 says, Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Isn't that interesting? They're the ones who really should be tested. He's implying that there's no hypocrisy in him, either in his belief or practice. Anybody who's followed him around knows there's been a perfect consistency between what he preaches and teaches, the way he lives, and what he does. But he's saying to them, why, why are you putting me to the test in, in order that you could maybe uncover some kind of imperfection or fault or quality in me? The reality is they're the ones that are about to be tested. So he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Verse 16 says, they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That word render simply means give back. Now, it'd be easy to just kind of say, oh, well, he just settled the argument. You pay your taxes to the government and you give your offering to God. There's more to it than just that surface meaning. And I think it's found in that little word, render. 
to give to Caesar what is due him, to give to God what is due him. Romans 13, 7 addresses a, a similar idea. There the Apostle Paul says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. There's no doubt that Jesus sees paying taxes in that context, and I think he would see it in ours as well, as a biblical thing to do. Because paying one's taxes ultimately falls under the higher authority of obeying God. See, this is the real question that Jesus is pressing into with these men at this particular point, I believe, and that is, what should I be rendering to God? And that's a question all of us need to wrestle with. Matt spoke about the opportunities you have to give, both in the physical offering here to give online, as as some of you do all of your business electronically. And I think you can worship God with some electronic means as well. But but is it good enough just just to put something in the plate? Is it good enough just to fill out your tax form this year and submit it and say, well, I've done it? Or is God seeking something more? We won't have time to get all the way there, but it's no coincidence that following these two different encounters, first with the Pharisees and the Herodians and then the Sadducees, that the very next paragraph, and we'll get there next week, is a conversation with a scribe who asked Jesus, what is the greatest command? And Jesus says simply, it is this, to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's what he wants you to render to him. We don't throw God little tokens of our affection. We don't throw them little breadcrumbs of our loyalty or our service. We render all that we are to him. And what he's doing is he's pulling down the mask of these two different religious groups who, who cloak the real ugly stuff going on inside, who mask it. Because it reveals they don't actually love God with all that they are. So we ask, well, what's hiding under the mask? Well, I think for the Pharisees, it's just love of self. If, go back to Matthew 6 and just read, some, read that portion of Scripture. You could also go to Matthew 23, where Jesus speaks very specifically, pronounces woe on the Pharisees. But in Matthew 6, he talks specifically about the hypocrites who love to be seen. They love to be seen in their praying. They love to be seen in their offering or almsgiving, as it's called. And they also be lo- love to be seen in their fasting. All of that is religious service and ministry that actually has a place in the lives of, of followers of Jesus. But you don't do it as a hypocrite. Because you don't do any of that in order to be seen, order to, in order to have people be impressed with you. That's love of self. There are times where it's absolutely appropriate to give an offering just out of love for God. Times where it's appropriate to, to pray, to fast, to do all of those things, but it's, it's not motivated by love of self. And, and Jesus is exposing this love of self in the Pharisees. How about the Herodians? I think if it comes down to it, you might say it's just love of influence. Why else would you become the ally of Herod? A wicked man. A man who had no qualms about putting to death people that were around him, both family and close associates. Now, the Herodians would tell you, oh, we're, we're, 
we're religious people. We're committed to God, probably shared more in common with Sadducees than Pharisees. That's just a mask. At the end of the day, they love the influence they gain in connection with Herod more than they love God himself. I stared at those masks on the screen last night for a while and just was thinking through, Lord, what am I masking? We really have to guard our hearts against concluding at this point, oh, those Pharisees and Herodians, they are dirt bags. No, actually, we need to read that and say, there's more of me showing up in that than I would ever want to admit. You know what? I love myself more dearly than certainly I should. And if I were really honest, some days I love self more than any other person in all the universe. I'm not willing to acknowledge that as, as the sin it is, the really grievous idolatry that I've just put myself on the throne of the universe and, and in a weird way bowed down to myself. Love of influence? Oh yeah, man, I'm hungry for it. And so are you. That's why it really torques you when somebody doesn't go with your opinion. What are my ideas so stupid that nobody ever wants to take them? I and mean, we sit at the conference table, have these brainstorming sessions, and at the end of the day, nobody cares what I say. I've been at this company longer than anybody else. Mm, careful. There's a Herodian in your heart. There's a Herodian in my heart. Do you know the really powerful thought to me? Is that if these two groups had acknowledged their hypocrites and actually called upon Jesus to forgive their sin of loving self or loving influence more than they love God, he would have done it on the spot and he would have begun a transforming work in them. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus didn't enter the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that includes being saved from the love of self that will ultimately destroy your soul and mine if we don't repent of it. That means saving us from the love of influence, that craving for position and power and influence that will ultimately destroy the soul if we don't repent of it. In love... Jesus pulls down that mask and says, can we talk about what you really are? This question isn't about, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? This, is the, this question goes much deeper to the issue of what should you render, not only to Caesar, what should you render to God? They marveled at him. The end of verse 17 simply says, they wondered greatly. And I cannot help but think if part of their marveling is, wow, we've just been exposed. They certainly didn't trap him. I'm sure that that is some of the marveling that they feel. Like, we, you just cannot get this guy. But I wonder if some of them walked away saying, he touched on some real heart issues. How did he know that? Well, he's God. He knows all things. He knows you and me, and in love, he is not willing to let us continue in hypocrisy. Now look at verse 18 with me. The Sadducees came to him, the scriptures tell us, who say that there is no resurrection. So Mark's reminding us of a really important piece of their worldview. 
And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And that's true. You would find that in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. It is commonly and simply referred to as the Mosaic provision for the leveret marriage. It's different from our cultural context. We read that, most of us, and we're like, that's odd, if not a little troubling. But it was part of their culture. And they're absolutely correct. Then they go on in verse 20, though, and and they pose a, a, a scenario that some actually believe may have actually been a common joke among the Sadducees. Can't confirm or verify that, but here it is. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Well, again, it seems like a quandary, like a, a, a mystery that it would be great for somebody to answer. And, and yet there's something pernicious beneath the surface here, very obviously, isn't there? And maybe some of it is they are seeking to show the irrationality of Christ's teaching that there will be a resurrection. I'm struck by the fact that as we've studied through the Gospel of Mark to this point, Jesus has said three different times to his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die Uh, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again from the dead the third day. So he's on record as not only believing in a resurrection, but teaching that he himself will be resurrected shortly. And remember, we're just a couple of days away now from the betrayal and crucifixion, which means we're only a couple of days away from his resurrection. Is this a greater ploy and plot of of the devil himself through these Sadducees to plant seeds of doubt in the heart of Messiah? Well, I can tell you, it never was going to work. Because the Messiah is absolutely sure that the promises that he holds on to from his God and our God, from his Father and our Father, are sure and will come to pass. Maybe this is even a pernicious way to plant seeds of doubt in the hearts and minds of his disciples who are there, causing them to question the validity of resurrection theology. Whatever it is, watch Jesus speak authoritatively. And in, in, in verse 24, he says to them straight up, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You know, when you stand up in any kind of setting where other people are strongly committed to their own beliefs and you have the, the courage to say straight up, you are wrong, You're inviting a fight, especially in today's culture, aren't you? That's viewed as arrogant. That's viewed as bigoted. That's even viewed as backwards and small-minded, as if you're not open to other things. But there are some things in life, beloved, that we don't open the door to. Jesus is using terminology that says, in no uncertain terms, You're wrong, you've been led astray, you're misled, you are deceived. And two things that he states, you do not know the scriptures, zing, again, these are very highly educated religious uh, men, 
You don't know the scriptures. And secondly, you don't know the power of God. And then he's going to give them a little lesson. First of all, uh, they are, as they are ignorant of the scriptures, he's going to take them back to the Pentateuch. Remember, they only believe the first five books of the Bible. He's actually going to quote from the first five books of the Bible to, to prove his point. And then he says, you're ignorant of the power of God. And he's also going to make that case right out of the writings of Moses. So let's watch him do this and demonstrate that they are quite wrong, as he will go on to say. First of all, regarding marriage. Now, we know that marriage is designed by God for this life. And though these books had not been written at this point, Paul, in two different places, captures the essence of this truth and, and writes of it and says that a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. He's actually building on some of that same Old Testament theology that, that Jesus will bring out to the Sadducees here in a moment. And he repeats almost the identical, it's certainly identical truth, but with very similar words in 1 Corinthians 7, 39. You know, that's why traditional wedding vows often include the promise, till death do us part. Now, in marriage, and, and we've had this conversation, many of us, for all of our lives, but certainly in a marriage relationship between two believers, when you consider the, the, the design of God for now and, and the hope of a resurrection life and eternity in heaven, it's hard to picture yourself not still being married, isn't it? And Kristen and I talk about this sometimes. Occasionally, that's probably a relief to her. Um, <laughs> But you say to yourselves, we'll be perfect at that point. That means our love will be perfect and our love for one another will be perfect. How can we not be married then? For us, it's, we're, we're, we're in our 29th year. And, and sometimes she'll jokingly say, will you still come over and have a cup of coffee with me sometimes? And I say, sure, I'll be there. When I finish meeting the millions and millions of other people and all of that, or we'll do it together. I mean, who knows? I mean, it's mind-blowing in one particular way, but this is reality. The covenant relationship that husbands and wives enter into right now is limited to this time. But marriage, according to Jesus, does not continue in heaven. And look at those words. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels. That doesn't mean you, you cease to be human and, and you morph into some kind of angelic being or state at that particular point. He's just saying that you know, angels exist and, and they serve and, and fulfill many different roles, apparently, in heaven, but none of them are married and neither will you be. That's all he's saying. So you'll be a perfect human being in a perfect place, in the presence of God forever. Your love for all people, as well as God, will finally be pure and perfect in every way, but there's no marriage. Now, this is a, this is a complete sidebar, but let me just throw this out because it's really important for us to think biblically. Part of the reason is revealed in Ephesians 5 when God tells us that marriage between a Christian husband and Christian wife is designed to dramatize the relationship between Jesus the eternal groom, if you will, and the church. And that's the only marriage relationship that continues forever. Now, that's, that's a whole other line of thinking, but it makes, reason, or makes sense to me then when I think through these reasons, like, well, well, of course, we don't need to dramatize that holy relationship any longer because the church will actually be with Jesus forever. So in one sense, there is one marriage for eternity. It's Jesus and his church. We'll have to come back to that at some point, though. So he says, you're, 
you're actually quite wrong regarding marriage. Secondly, you're actually quite wrong regarding uh, the, the resurrection. And then he quotes Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then here's the conclusion that Jesus draws out of that and, and does so in a way as if to say, you've never seen this? You mean you've read Exodus 3 how many times? You're experts in the first five books of the Old Testament, but you never drew the right theological conclusion when God says, I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, all of whom are dead at the time that God speaks this word to Moses. The, the right conclusion is God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Discussion over. And then he actually goes back and says, you are quite wrong, greatly misled. Is that arrogant and bigoted of Jesus to say to people who are sincere in their commitments, who are even well-studied in the conclusions and framework that they have built, the, the worldview that they've put together? I mean, these are not ignoramuses. Is that bigoted of Jesus to say, you are wrong? I actually say to you, it, not only is it not bigoted, it's actually the most loving thing he can do in this conversation to say to them, you are quite wrong. Because if you continue to live your life as if there is no life beyond what you know now, you will perish and suffer destruction of your soul, eternal torment and condemnation. Why wouldn't you warn someone of impending doom when you see it so clearly? What a hateful thing to remain silent and say, well, if that's what you want to believe, good for you. I'm sure it did not make the Sadducees happy at this particular moment. I wonder, and we'll have to ask the Lord when we get to heaven one day, were there any of those men that day who were brought, to, brought face to face with their wrong thinking and it, and it marked a turn where they ultimately repented of their sin, of their religious elitism even, and put their faith in you as Lord and Savior and experienced the life-changing redemption of the cross and resurrection that at this point they denied. You know, there are wrong ideas in our present culture that will eventually have destructive consequences. You don't see it at first glance as you read through this passage, but as you meditate on it, I, and I, this, is, this is where I've been over the last couple of days, I've just thought, you know, Jesus Christ is the most loving person to ever walk the planet. And it just makes me love him all the more. And, and even here, just knowing that he was loving enough, not just courageous enough, but loving enough to say to this group, you're wrong, quite wrong. Or to say to the Pharisees and Herodians, render to God what is God's. It brings all of us back to the place of saying, where's the Pharisee, the Herodian, the Sadducee in me? Where is it in you? Are you pretending to be someone or something that you really are not? You know, you don't have to continue living that way. Jesus says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's exhausting to play the role. Hypocrisy is the one, one of the most exhausting life choices you can make. You always got to be on your game. You always got to make sure you got the right face on, the right words come out of your mouth, the right clothes on your body. 
run with the right people, go to the right places, shop at the right stores, drive the right kind of vehicle. It's just exhausting. And Jesus has come to me. And first of all, let's talk about how sinful and broken you are. And you know what? Jesus already knows. So when, when you just begin to pour out your heart, you're not telling him things he doesn't know. He, he just wants you to agree with him that you are as messed up as you are, that I'm as messed up as I really am. But that's the point where he says, first of all, and I forgive you, all of it. Oh, and, I, and I'll cleanse it all away and, re- and remove this record of all of your evil and ungodliness. And not only remove all of that, I'm going to replace it with a perfect record of my life, my righteousness. And then he clothes you with his robes of righteousness, the Bible tells us. You talk about a change of fashion consciousness. Looking out, there's some younger people here. That was a big deal when I was in high school, having the right right label, you know, on the back of your pants or up on your shirt. Just felt enormous pressure. Talking with our kids not long ago, and one of them made a statement basically like, you know what, I never want to come to the place where I'm just out of touch. And I, I don't know that she was like telling us directly we're out of touch, although I'm sure she thinks that. <laughs> but Chris and I were talking later, and we said, you know, isn't it great to just reach a place in life where it's like, it's not that I don't care about what I wear, it's just I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I want to look nice and presentable. I'd, I'd never want to stand up here in a, in a way where everybody's like, that is the strangest outfit ever. You know, you kind of want to find that sweet spot between, a, a friend of mine used to say, you know, I don't, I don't want to be the first into a new fashion, and I don't want to be the last one out of it either. <laughs> I thought, that's wise. I, don't, I, I want to dress in a way that removes obstacles from relationships, and in particular, dress in a way that, that you're not creating some obstacle that a person has to, has to try to climb over so we can talk about Jesus. That's the big deal, and that's part of the transformation that God wants to work in us, where, where he, he is removing all of that sin and, and removing that old record of, of brokenness and corruption and rebellion, and he's giving, replacing it, exchanging it with this record of Christ's righteousness, clothing us in his righteousness, giving us that place of security and acceptance in his presence forever. That's what frees us to actually become the people we were created to be. Are you willing to take down the mask? Second question for us to consider, how do our core beliefs line up with what Jesus says? It may be on this very matter of life after death. Some of you may be saying, I don't think there's life after this life. Well, you're wrong, dear friend, quite wrong. And you're willing to take the risk of living out all of your days, reaching the point of death, and suddenly standing before the God who created you, recognizing that you're about to enter eternity where there is no end. And where his word clearly says that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but those who reject Jesus Christ in this offer of salvation will perish. And that's a horrific term. To perish doesn't mean you just cease to exist. It actually means you will undergo eternal condemnation, judgment, and torment. I know for some of you that, that would even anger you. Say, oh, you, you religious nut jobs. You need to stop saying this stuff. No, it it really, it's out of the same love that compelled Jesus to say to those Sadducees, you're quite wrong, that any of us would say to anyone who's here today, oh, you're, you're quite wrong. 
But even now, Jesus shows his love because he brought you into a place where truth, we're doing our best, we don't do it perfectly, but, but truth is here, week in and week out. And because Jesus Christ is the great king, the ultimate authority, what he says is the final authority. So the, the question before us today is, how do my core beliefs line up with what Jesus says? And if we find differences, then, then we need to forsake our ways of thinking and submit to his and follow in faith. If it were just you and Jesus, is it possible that he would say to you, you are quite wrong? But again, the great hope of the gospel, the good news is that God knows us as we are, bad as we are, still invites us to come and says, you know what, actually, I love you more than you can fathom. And I'll take care of all of your sins. I'll give you a place in my presence forever because he loves to rescue and deliver the self-righteous, and the unrighteous. What a great Savior.